I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Okay, today we are talking about George Floyd. This is a Natty Part 2, but we kind of teased this episode at the end of the last episode. So if you didn't listen to that, make sure to go back to the one before this and take a listen. And yeah, I'm sure everybody listening to this is probably aware of the name George Floyd and knows some degree of maybe the story of what happened. But Garen, take us. What do we need to know? So I wanted to do this episode because even for myself, I know of George Floyd and didn't really know his story or his life. And I wanted to know who he really was and more of his story. Robert Samuels and Toulouse Alurinipa from New York Times did a biography on his life called His Name is George Floyd. So would love for you guys to pick up his biography because it goes into a lot more detail than we'll have time to do here and is a great book. But I was excited for the opportunity to look into his life and find out more of who he was because right now I think he's more of an icon than somebody who we can actually directly relate to. And this biography really helped me to see more who he actually was. And that's what I hope to introduce you guys to and bring to you through this episode. Great. So I'm going to start with a quote from that biography. It says, When George Floyd took his first breath in 1973, the strictures of Jim Crow-style discrimination in America had given way to what would become a more enduring and insidious kind of racism, a systemic version that would calcify just beneath the surface of American society. Growing up in one of the nation's most diverse metropolises, Floyd lived in a neighborhood that was racially segregated because the government designed it to be so. The crumbling CUNY Homes housing project, Houston's oldest, was a modern sand trap of poverty from which Floyd struggled to escape. He attended segregated schools in the Third Ward where Houston's public education system funneled black students into underfunded classrooms. This is something we've kind of talked about before in a way, but we see it here that the past injustice has created a backdrop and a context into which Floyd was born, where he was never really given the same opportunity that we take for granted in America. He was brought up in schools that were underfunded and remained segregated well into the 70s. As a child, Floyd would shoot a basketball against a brick wall at one of the CUNY Homes buildings, practicing shots into imagined nets. And when he was a little older, he started to play pickup games with his neighborhood friends. And he was very talented. He was tall for his age throughout his life, and that gave him an edge in sports. And he started to have dreams of what it might be like to be a professional athlete. And that was in the culture of CUNY Homes, kind of seen as the way out, the ticket out of poverty and out of the third ward and into a life of opportunity. So Floyd's biographers, Samuels and Alurinipa, describe the Third Ward as, quote, wary of outsiders but fiercely loyal to fellow neighbors, the denizens of CUNY homes watched one another's children growing up, tossing basketballs into old milk crates that had been tied to telephone poles. Impromptu barbecues took place on humid summer evenings with everyone within earshot invited. 
Children would ride their bikes in bunches in the neighborhood, sometimes branching off to explore. Boisterous dice games took place in front of the units against the concrete porches where mice and roaches scurried between the dumpsters out back. The neighborhood motto was One Roof, One Family, and George Floyd carried this motto with him for the rest of his life. Poverty does not uproot human dignity, and the commitment to one another and the will to survive even in the face of that poverty is, I think, the flowers that kind of grow out of such dark circumstances. But the community of CUNY Homes, they were committed to one another. They were uh, committed to doing the best that they could do in a world that wasn't going to stand up for them. So Missy, Floyd's mom, warned George Floyd as a child, growing up in America, you already have two strikes and you're going to have to work three times harder than anybody else to make it in this world. Missy tried to teach her children to code switch, once saying, hey, you can speak this ghetto language, but you've got to speak the king's English. She knew that in order to have opportunity in this world, he could not just be a member of his own culture. And that's part of the thing that black people in America intuitively understand about the world that white people don't see or get to experience is that requirement to learn two cultures, to be dually cultural. Like white people, we just get to be, have our one culture and not have to think about how we are carrying and presenting ourselves when we walk into a room is we don't have to code switch. We don't have to at times be a different version of ourselves in order to be safe and have opportunity in a group of people who aren't like us. It's like being socially bilingual. And we talked about it in the episode with Dr. Rogers, where he kept saying that you have to know how to play the game. You have to know how to play the game. But we kept pressing back, pushing back with this idea that we have to be, Black people have to be socially bilingual. And there are also, there's weights and burdens to carry with having to have one foot in two very separate worlds where one world is set up to restrict and keep you from being who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just a strain emotionally, exactly, mentally. There's a strain to that constantly needing to switch. And saying that you are not accepted as your whole self here in this context. And we talked about how going to the golf tournaments and or going to play golf where we see with George playing basketball in his neighborhood was the social normative. And so basketball is not accepted in this structure. So it's just like having to keep parts of yourself hidden or knowing that parts of yourself, like the way your hair naturally grows or the way you talk within your community, that those things are not accepted, valued or appreciated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like, imagine if the extreme example would be if you went into a school classroom and some of the kids could get A's just learning one language and others had to learn two languages. It's like you have to work twice as hard in order to reach the same kind of playing field. Right. And Uh, being black in America, you do have to learn two languages. And it's not just vernacular or phonetics. It's literally a cultural language that you have to learn. That's a part that can often be a part apart from your from yourself, from your your own cultural societal 
normative. Mm-hmm. Floyd also in childhood grew up in a food desert. The third ward was a food desert as uh, you've probably heard the term thrown out before, but what that meant in his case was that there was no opportunity to buy good, healthy, fresh food. The main source of food was Scott's Food Mart, which was a local food store that they usually the people in the third ward would call the blue store because it had blue paint. And it was across the street from CUNY Homes. And it was one of the few options to purchase food, but they didn't sell any produce. It was just all processed food was the only opportunity that there was to eat. And a point on this, something I've, I've read before, there's a study, and I don't remember off the top of my head, I'm kind of riffing on this, but there's a study that I heard of and read about that just had two groups of people did a placebo-controlled study where they gave some of them processed foods and some fresh foods and said, eat until you're full. They didn't tell them how much to eat. They said, eat until you're full. And then halfway through the study, they switched the groups. So for the first half, some had processed food, some had fresh food, and then switched. And what they found was that the people who had the processed foods ate 500 calories a day more than the people with the fresh food. Because processed food doesn't trigger the mechanisms in the body that help tell your brain when you're full as easily. And so people... I think sometimes take obesity in poor communities as a sign of, well, they're not that poor because they are eating and have, you know, I've heard people make the argument, there's more than enough food because look, there's a struggle with obesity, but that's actually not accurate. The reality is that obesity is a sign of deprivation of fresh foods, of foods that, that people all on their own without any intentional mental effort eat 500 calories a day less of because they are just healthier foods that our bodies are designed to eat healthy food and so i I just want to throw that out because i've i've heard that argument made before and it it doesn't actually hold up And, and food deserts the lack of access to clean healthy food can lead to malnourishment but it can also lead to overnourishment and obesity but from the same source yeah Yeah, I went to a nutrition class a few years ago and it gave a visual of how eating green leaves and all the healthy things fill you much faster and like they fill your stomach much faster than like, you know, processed foods like fast foods, chicken nuggets, things like that. It doesn't fill you as much. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yep. So then in middle school, a point guard from the rival basketball team from the fifth ward. And there was some lively school rivalries between the various teams. So this team rival moved into CUNY homes. And when Floyd, who was on the basketball team, when he saw the kid and he recognized him as a rival, he was with some of his own teammates and they wanted to kind of rough him up and intimidate him and say like, stay away from our neighborhood. But Floyd stepped in and defended the kid. He walked him home to be sure that his teammates wouldn't get any ideas, and then he went on to befriend him. He ultimately invited this kid, who went by the name Po'boy, or the nickname Po'boy, and he encouraged him to join the team. Po'boy, the nickname was short for Poor Boy, and he became one of Floyd's closest friends, and he referred to Floyd as his brother. Later in middle school, the the Floyd family took Po'boy in. They had him sleep over on school nights, and he would just go home on the to the fifth ward on the weekends, so that he could stay at the school in the third ward and play on the team. So he was like a a brother that 
Floyd had looked out for and kind of brought under his wing and into his family. And that speaks to Black families for generations historically, like adopting other children. There's this misconception, and we did an episode about it, about Black motherhood and Black women being bad mothers. But you see this in historically, like throughout from enslavement and even before then, through how Black people have this culture of adoption, unwritten, where they took people's kids in, they raised other people's kids, like how we had to depend on each other for survival. And we see in George's life up to this point, all these elements where his mother allowed a man who was drunk to come in. She set a plate for him and he ate how a kid from another school, a rival school comes in and they adopt him, take him in, allow him to live in their home where they're already impoverished and he eats food and he takes up space. And this is the black community that I know. Like all of these stories are very common. The food desert. I grew up in a food desert. I know exactly like everything that George has experienced up to this point, I can relate to. And it is very common for poor black communities and the black community in general. Mm -hmm. Somewhere along the lines in childhood, a neighbor, a friendly neighbor named Veronica learned that the Floyd family was struggling and having a hard time affording to feed their five children. And so Veronica would bring over extra food from a charity and pour bags of food on the Floyd dining room table, which is beautiful and generous. I think giving food is great, but I wanted to kind of take a moment to point out just how for children who are struggling with food insecurity and growing up not knowing where their next meal is coming from, part of the problem is a lack of food, but part of the problem is also the anxiety over where your next meal is going to come from. And so charity, like the giving of food, the giving of free meals, takes care of the food problem temporarily, but it doesn't necessarily take care of that anxiety problem, the security of knowing that you're going to have enough and be taken care of. And so I think sometimes people say like, well, we should just take care of poverty through charity and through personal acts of generosity. And those do help, like having food versus not having food, that's obviously better, but it doesn't get all the way to the root. I think in order to really help children grow up in a world where they feel like they can be secure and therefore thrive and grow, they need to have like that foundational assurance that you will have enough. It's the idea of giving people charity versus bestowing people dignity mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by creating opportunities that would build wealth within a family generationally. People talk about Black people wanting handouts, but the whole concept of handouts was created to systemically keep Black people in a certain place mm. to continue to otherize Black people. George Floyd is one year younger than I am. So everything you're reading, I know the experience personally. And I remember the shifts when he became president, what that meant for us, the things that happened, I remember. And it's the idea of keeping people generationally impoverished, but then using that whole system to accuse people that you've created a system to keep them in a certain place. Mm -hmm. When you say when he became president, you mean Ronald Reagan? Right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's uh, something we can, we can talk about a little bit more. Uh, Reagan, he cut federal programs that were helping keep families like the Floyd family afloat. And more importantly, he suppressed the minimum wage. And that goes to that point of... What does that mean he suppressed it? Prevented the minimum wage from continuing to rise, like campaigned against yeah. increasing the minimum wage. Right now, the minimum wage, basically, if you compare adjusted for inflation, the minimum wage, what it is right now versus what it was back in like the 60s and early 70s, it's like a third of what it was. I mean, the, the dollar figure is maybe up slightly, but it's when you adjust for inflation, it's actually significantly lower. So the, basically taking away that dignity of work and being paid for your work and then replacing it with these like system of handouts that ultimately invisibly removed wealth from the black community. The average annual income of Americans as a whole rose by 3.5% annually during Reagan's first term. But according to the Urban Institute, black families saw their income during the same period fall by an average of 3.7%. So there's this inversed, silent kind of system being constructed where overall wealth is growing, but it's at a cost of the of black families and of poor families. And the cost of living is increasing, but the wage to accommodate the lifestyle that would sustain the cost of living is decreasing or not increasing at all or, or staying stagnant. Yeah. And part of that was Reagan. Part of that was also just when unions fell out of favor in the 60s, unions became an issue where basically they peaked in popularity in the 60s. And that's part of what brought minimum wage up to three times what it is today. But then unions started to be seen as giving handouts to black people. And so there started to be this rhetoric of around unions and this anti-opposition, like this sentiment of opposition to unions that we're seeing it as like, oh, if this is helping black people, then it's hurting. It's kind of like the zero-sum game mentality. It must be hurting me. And so unions fell out of favor in the 60s. And then there's been a kind of continual slide sense. But Reagan also pushed that along by getting a lot of the, a lot of the money actually, and we talked about this in the mass incarceration episode, he redirected a lot of money from social programs into mass incarceration. And yep. rather than housing people, built prisons to house them, but in a different and more cynical way. And I remember my father was a part of a union and black people were exploited in a lot of ways by poor white people who had to be a part of the unions as well. I just, you can scratch that, but I just, you know, this story is like triggering because I'm just remembering Mm. so many things as you're reading, you know, that played out in my, my real life. But yeah. No, I think we should keep that. Maybe, did we do an episode on unions? Yeah. We yeah. Did. Yeah. yeah we They're did. kind of making a comeback. Yeah, they are. You know? Yeah. They People are. are starting to realize, oh, wait, those are kind of helpful. Some of these really big companies. Yeah. Yep. yep. The unions are the reason why we have the 40 hour work week and yep. two weekend days off. It's like it's now, it's, it's not just affecting benefits. black and brown people. It's like oh, starting to affect... Mm-hmm. A bunch of other people. But, but it's always affected right. a, a bunch of other people. But yeah. 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 yeah it got pegged as aff- affecting black and brown people because unions help everyone. And so Absolutely. in helping everyone, they help black and brown people. And so then part of the anti-union sentiment was campaigns led by capitalists who 
because unions don't help the people who own the factories, but they help all the workers there. So they tried to divide, cause divisions between white and black workers and like tried to pit them against each other in order to keep them from negotiating together. And this makes me think of Fred Hampton, who we need to do an episode on and how he was able to mobilize black people and poor white people, which unions help people to kind of realize some of that, which that division is what the system relies on to keep us divided. And we talk about that when we talk about last place aversion and how that whole idea is created to keep white people and black people apart, not realizing that poor white people and black people have a lot of similarities in how we experience life in this country. They don't experience these things because they are white, but because they are poor, there's some correlation. And us uniting creates a benefit that a capitalistic society does not want us to realize. Mm-hmm. So and if you're interested in more of these conversations, we did episodes on the cost of racism and labor unions that both go into some of that more. So going back to the situation with Floyd's family growing up in poverty, because they couldn't afford laundry soap, George Floyd would use soapy dishwasher to hand wash his clothes on school nights. It was in those days that uh, Reagan's war on drugs started and put military-style police presence on the streets of the Third Ward. And the local Fox affiliate began to run nightly stories on the Third Ward street crimes, a segment that they called The Besieged. We've talked before about how media over portrays black criminality by a factor of like three, I think is the number, and over portrays black poverty by about 50%. So when the media shows, they're just more likely to show a black person who committed a crime than a white person who committed the same crime. And it, it creates this false portrayal that exacerbates the racial stereotypes around crime and poverty. And that was kind of picking up pace in that time. George Floyd battled claustrophobia, high blood pressure, anxiety, depression, and drug dependency. Claustrophobia actually was a result of, he had been imprisoned, and we'll get into like the story part of it, but he had been put into prison and dealing with just being in this tiny cell was traumatic for him. And he, during the later encounter with Chauvin and the other police officers that we'll get to kind of at the end of the episode, he refused to and was terrified to climb into the police car when they were trying to put him in the police car. And he was begging them, saying, I have claustrophobia, I have claustrophobia. But that claustrophobia was something that formed because of earlier traumatic experiences with being trapped in small spaces while being incarcerated. So really, like one of the off-ramps, one of the ways that he could have, his life could have been saved was if he had gotten in the car. But that in that moment, he was in like a traumatic and trauma-induced fight-or-flight response because of the, I would say, I think it's fair to use the word cruelty of the criminal justice system, the dehumanization that our system, if you compare the American prison system, and we've done episodes on this before too, if you compare it to other developed nation prison systems, ours is more punitive and less rehabilitative than most any other Western democracy. and it left like scars on Floyd that ultimately would be even contributing to his death. George Floyd was a big man and that helped him in athletics, but it also was something that he was self-conscious of. And he was aware that he intimidated people and 
deliberately attempted to assure the people around him in the face of that. So one of his friends asked him, why do you do that? His friend PJ asked him about how he would enter rooms and greet each person one by one, shaking their hands and exchanging brief pleasantries. And Floyd's response was, I can't go into a room like you. Because of my size, people look at me and they're nervous and scared. So I open up to them and let them know that I'm okay. I'm a good person. My youngest son has literally said those exact words. He is the youngest, but he's a football player and he's the biggest, even though he's not the tallest. And there is, he has literally said that because of his size. He is a gentle giant. He walks up to people and he introduces himself. He's very much a yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, more so than my other two children, even though all three of my sons are very, they look people in the eye, like they're very intentional with how they communicate. But my youngest son literally said that it's because of his size. He knows that he intimidates people and he has to make people feel comfortable around him. People have told me, those, your boys, they don't look like babies. Black people, black children are aged at a younger age. They appear to be older than they are because of perceptions mm-hmm. about black boys and a black, about black men. We have seen in the news where people will call a 16-year-old black boy a man. But a 21-year-old white man, boy, or a young adult, this whole story, this is triggering to me because I, I am George Floyd. George Floyd is me. George Floyd is my sons. My sons are him. And it is just by the grace of God, and I don't even know if that is it, that our lives turned out to be a somewhat different. Maybe it's ableism, maybe it's access resources, but there are so many things that are the same in my life's experience, in my husband's life experience. You are reading my life. You are reading the life of my husband. You are reading the life of so many black people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To back up what you're saying, black youths are 18 times more likely to be tried as an adult than as white youths. Yeah. So, I mean, whenever you hear about, yeah, so-and-so was 16, but was tried as an adult, there is this, and I don't think that that's a conscious decision. I think it's a subconscious bias that is unchecked and unchallenged. And so people just like, oh yeah, he seems older. Even though, here's the irony. Black youths are more likely to come from a background of trauma, and trauma actually delays maturity and development. So even though a black youth like George Floyd may have at 16 appeared to be big and strong, if he's coming from a background of food insecurity, already that's going to slightly delay the mature processing in his, in his brain to where he's actually should be given more grace to be tried as not an adult. But we just have it backwards. Let's also talk about how black boys and girls have to mature a lot faster because we know how people perceive us and mm-hmm. how black people have had to raise their children in survival mode to where black children oftentimes are robbed of a childhood. To be told as a young black person, as a child, 
Those people are not your friends. And to be taught that you have to be wary of people at all times in the ways that white kids can frolic and exist and be oblivious to the world system and black children have to be conditioned to survive in ways that rob them of their childhood and the joys of what childhood should be. Mm -hmm. And then my generation, we've been able to give our kids more. We've been able to give them more resources, but because of our trauma, we have still raised our kids in survival mode. And that produces some of the same anxiety, depression, claustrophobia, genetically, when we're talking about food deserts, you know, developmental, just all kinds of issues that it creates. And it would create that not only in a black child, but any child that would grow up under those conditions. Mm -hmm. Yep. And let's not even talk about the flip side of that, where white supremacy produces the same in its kids, because they're on the other side of this trauma where they and their predecessors or ancestors have been on the inflicting side and it has ramifications. It has mental health and all kinds of ramifications mm -hmm. that we see played out in white kids as well. Yeah. It, no one benefits from this. Yeah. I Every mean, single person loses. And we talked before about parents who would bring their children to lynchings. That sometimes exactly. Lynchings had crowds of 5,000 to 10,000 people and people would bring their kids. And that is trauma that erodes the brain of these children and these white children erodes their brain's ability to have empathy because there's like a coping mechanism there that is traumatic and is passed down. Yeah. The conscious of our country is rooted in white supremacy and oppression and just this institution of racism. And it plays out in different ways, depending on what side you grew up on, but it still has the, like it, we're at a loss. So getting into Floyd's high school years, he, like I hinted at before, he attended segregated high school. The way that segregation was maintained in Texas and throughout the South after it was like no longer officially legal. So Brown made it illegal, but it didn't force states to actually relocate children to other districts. And because the housing was so, so segregated, they were able to maintain school segregation by maintaining geographic segregation. Yeah. And so what would happen is basically black students would start to attend a white high school. And then once there was this tipping point, all the white families would move away. Yep. And by moving away by that white flight, you ended up with a school that was still basically completely segregated. So from 1970 to 1983, so this is very much George Floyd's childhood, 16 Houston schools went from 90% white to more than 90% black. Yep. And 70% of Houston area black students still attended segregated schools in 1983. So, I mean, there were just the strategies changed, but the idea of maintaining segregation, it was not solved. It was not addressed. And even today, a lot of schools are still very segregated because of a failure to overcome the history of redlining and of geographic segregation. It's interesting because there are schools 
that continue to thrive, even with that lack of resources. And it's interesting how like Booker T. Washington High School in Dallas or Overton High School in Memphis, where these teachers and I went to Overton in Memphis, where these the teachers would really pour into the students. All these black teachers would be, you know, you would see the shift from going from a certain percentage of white to mostly black. But the schools would continue to thrive in certain programs, specifically in Booker T and Overton. It would be the music and the theater and the arts, the creative and performing arts. Then you would see white students come back. So Booker T. Washington High School in Dallas, you have Erica Badu, Sean Martin, all of these famous musicians that would come up through these schools. And now white people come back to gentrify the schools. Hmm. So if there's talent identified in these schools for whatever reason, then there's like a copying that happens. But it's there's a clear evidence of the white flight. But if they're doing well, which no one expects them to do well, then white students go back. Mm. It's crazy. Yeah. So then even then, I mean, it, I don't, it depends on the situation, but the concern would be even then if the black community builds up a school that is then thriving then, and white people come back and kind of claim it, then where are those black students displaced to? Absolutely. Back to other underperforming schools. Yeah, it's very complex. Very. Mm-hmm. And, and then, but you don't live in this neighborhood, though. So why are you here? <laughs> yeah. Which is the argument of white people when they talked about when it came to busing and all the why does my kid have to go to this school over here? But you would come back to a black school if it's thriving in a program and your child benefits. Mm-hmm. But Floyd School was not one that was known for absolutely thriving or academia. Yates High School was almost 100% black and it was known for its athletics. It had a really strong athletics program, but not a strong academics program. So his high school teachers remembered him as a calm student who would ask for hugs and insert words like ma'am and sir into every sentence. As a freshman, Floyd was called up to play on the varsity football team, which he was very proud of. He had these dreams of playing pro ball and some previous professional ball players had followed in those steps of being called up into varsity as freshmen. And so he thought, maybe I actually have a chance to do that. His football team went on to the Texas State Championship game where Floyd played well, but they ultimately came up short in that case of a win. Coming from an under-resourced school, Floyd had trouble passing the mandatory testing that were required by the state for graduation, and he didn't pass until a few months after high school. So he wasn't allowed to walk with his graduating class, and that was a humiliating blow, and it deflated him. He did come back and pass the test over the summer, and so he was able to move on from that chapter, but it left a mark on him and kind of took away some of his dignity, his ability to believe in himself academically, and that kind of chased him through the chapters to come. He went to South Florida Community College to play basketball, and while he was there, he was recruited to Texas A&M in Kingsville to play tight end in their football program. And he jumped at that opportunity, which was a great opportunity to become the first member of his family to attend a four-year college, but it ended up being kind of tragically not what he thought it would be. The community college that he'd gone to basically pushed him and the other basketball players through super easy classes in order to keep their 
academic eligibility to play sports, but then A&M had higher kind of requirements. And his Floyd's classes at the community college didn't even transfer. So he had to go back and catch up by taking all these other classes and continually played catch up after that and actually never qualified to play for the football team because he was just continually trying to catch up with where he needed to be to play. So his dreams were kind of dashed and ultimately he dropped out and went back to CUNY Homes without a degree and without his continued hopes to be able to play professional ball. So in that low place, he turned to selling drugs as a way to make cash. He didn't have money to move into a home. So, you know, right away, he's needs quick cash in order to find a place to live and in order to try to catch his life from this being kicked off the tracks he thought it was on and to figure out what am I going to do next. But between those, like in that period, as the war on drugs was really escalating, there was a major crackdown on the selling the sale of illegal drugs. And that policing of drugs, it was not a universal policing of drugs. It was so white people and black people, we've talked about this before, use and sell drugs at very similar, comparable rates. And yet the escalation of the war on drugs was on and around black communities. So that between the years of 1986 and 1999, the number of young white Texans in prison for drug offenses actually declined by 9%. But during that same period, the number of black youths locked up on drug charges grew by 360%. Black youths in Texas were being locked up at seven times the rate of whites, even though they use and sell drugs at the same rates. So why is that? Why are there such divergent rates? It's because the system, I think in some ways intentionally was designed to create that result. And then also a lot of the actors in the system maybe don't intentionally know what's happening, but they just have subconscious bias that, that kind of tailor things in that direction. A police officer might be more likely to make assumptions of a black youth than a white youth. But also there are quotes that you can look up from the Reagan administration that there was also a deliberate effort to cause racial disparities in policing and in incarceration. On one occasion, George Floyd was with his friend Keynes and they went out late at night to buy snacks and a Houston police narcotics officer stopped them without cause to search them. The cops threw both men onto the ground and put their feet on their backs, put the officers put their feet on the backs of the of Keynes and Floyd to hold them in place while they searched Kane's car without permission, which is unconstitutional. And when they found nothing, they told the men that they were free to go. But the interior of Kane's car was disheveled. It had been torn apart. His radio and speakers were pulled out of their place. The officers didn't put them back together and they didn't apologize. And without explaining, they never explained why they had searched them in. They never showed a warrant or anything establishing probable cause. So Kane's in that encounter was initially angry. He was just kind of furious that of the injustice of it. But Floyd, his response was kind of jubilation of having gotten away from the encounter without being brutalized, without, I mean, worst case scenario, being killed. And I mean, what an irony, what a crazy situation to be able to go through an injustice like that and come out of it feeling lucky. And I think as a white person, that's hard to relate to because if I went through something like that, I think I would be much more likely to feel that indignation. But it's in the context of 
continually seeing the system be so unjust that you could come to a point where you feel lucky if you come through something like that and get a walk away from it. So back home without a job, without a degree, desperate to make rent, Floyd turned to selling drugs. And after selling $18 of drugs to an undercover officer, Floyd pled no contest and spent six months in prison. But even after he was released, the effects of that experience continued. It set his life on a different trajectory. And that's where he got claustrophobia, which continued for the rest of his life. And he also had hundreds of dollars in court debts, which continued to hound him after that. And we've talked before in the mass incarceration episode how courts will even oftentimes do wage garnishments where it, it becomes much more difficult with a criminal record to get a job. And even if you get a job, you can have 15, 30, or sometimes even more, a larger percentage of your paycheck go towards paying court fees and fines. So in that low point, Floyd, who had befriended a DJ, he would rap sometimes and he rapped the lyrics or wrote the lyrics that kind of shows where his mental state was at that point. He said, damn little Wayne, I've been broke for so long. I've been stuck in last place for so long, loaded, loaded with potential, but I'm still going wrong. Need to get my act together quick. And then he's the N word and said, and start being grown. I think he, he saw loaded, loaded with potential, but I'm still going wrong. It shows just his own view of his life that he knew that he could do more and was made for more and yet was just stuck in this system, this story, this reality, this struggle where he wasn't helped, wasn't enabled, wasn't allowed to reach his potential. And he saw that and had to grieve that. I mean, I see grief in those lyrics, just wishing that his life could have been on a different track. Over the course of Floyd's life, the number of incarcerated Americans would balloon tenfold, from 200,000 to 2 million. During Bush's tenure as governor in Texas, the prison system was the fastest growing part of the state government. And when Governor Perry took over, he saved money, not by reducing incarceration rates, but by slashing the medical budget for incarcerated prisoners by 13% during a time when medical costs and prison censuses were going up. The prisons were not rehabilitative, are not rehabilitative, and we're not trying to take care of people and set them on a different track or try to open up new opportunities or new potential. They were and are punitive and oftentimes just cause a cycle of violence because people will, when they get out of prison, not have the opportunities to get jobs. Those doors will be closed to them. And so what are they going to do? The recidivism rates are very high. And I mean, it's like, yeah, it's punitive, but also it's a way to make money yeah, and produce money too that, you know, yeah. there's a, I mean, that's, that's a bigger reason of why the system is punitive and not restorative. Yes. It's because the government can get a ton of money. Yeah. From, and from and we'll go into that later with one of his prison stays. We kind of go into that a little bit more. So we'll save that for a second, but I'm going to come back. So Floyd was arrested in CUNY Homes for loitering, and the arresting officer wrote, quote, he looks like he was going nowhere in particular, and he was held for 30 days on a failure to identify charge. And that's the kind of thing that, like, can you imagine that happening in a white community to a white person? Not at all. On one occasion, 
When his brother Rodney was being arrested, George Floyd walked over without knowing the situation or understanding what was happening, and he asked the officer to arrest him instead. Because he already had a criminal record, but Rodney didn't. And he he knew how it could steal his life from him. So Floyd goes over and he says, it's not him, it was me. Not even really knowing the situation. And when the cops found out that the two men were brothers, they simply arrested both of them. So that was did not accomplish what he was hoping. And in the station, the officer who was kind of talking to them in the station flipped a coin to decide whether or not to press charges or release them. Gross. Mm -hmm. During those days, police officers were financially incentivized to make numerous arrests. The pay for the department was based on these benchmarks, these numbers of arrests. And multiple officers who arrested Floyd were later decertified for evidence of corruption. One officer, Officer Goins, for example, supposedly used a paid informant to buy drugs from Floyd while he was watching and then swept in to arrest him after Floyd supposedly bought drugs from this paid informant. But it was all a lie. Floyd did not have any money on him when he was arrested, which if he's taking money for drugs, he should have money on him. And there were no witnesses there except Goins. Nobody could cor- corroborate that there was this paid informant. Goins refused to reveal the name of the anonymous informant. And Goins would later be accused by the Harris County District Attorney for falsifying evidence in hundreds of drug arrests, including Floyd's. But that wouldn't come out till later. He was acting corruptly and criminally to lock up, again, hundreds of drug arrests. This was just like a program of injustice and it was later on exposed, but not at the time. And Floyd still had to live with the ramifications. Yeah, and, I was going to say everybody, all their records are probably still on there. I mean, his record, I think for that crime was expunged, but that it's like a snowball that builds. And then right. yeah, you, you add a little bit of snow and then you let the snowball build. And then maybe later on you take that snow out, but it's still a massive snowball by that point. <laughs> it's like, it set him on a trajectory and pushed him into this prison pipeline that even when that injustice was later exposed, it doesn't undo it, doesn't undo the harm. After Goins arrested Floyd, Floyd wanted to fight the false charges, but he knew that the presumption of innocence wasn't real for a black man in the Texas courts. It would be his word against the officers, and the officers' word would be pretty much universally believed over Floyd's. So Floyd initially rejected a plea deal for two years because he was so indignant at the injustice, but he later accepted one that was offered for 10 months in prison for something he didn't do. So his biographers, Robert Samuels and Toulouse Aluna Ripa, describe, quote, Floyd ultimately signed his name eight separate times to guilty plea documents that were topped by the words, the state of Texas versus George Floyd. The lopsided title accurately reflected the odds he faced in the nation's most punitive state. So we're going to leave it there for this week. But next episode, in two weeks, we're going to pick back up with his story and continue to look at the life of George Floyd. 